Awesome. Hey, welcome to church. We're glad to have you uh, in the house of God with us this morning in this month as we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the reality of a Savior who was born in the fullness of time under the law to redeem those who were under the law. As we celebrate the, the one who became incarnate, took on flesh with us, the one who never leaves nor forsakes, who's with us both on the mountaintop seasons of life and in the valley seasons of life, we take great comfort and great joy this morning that the God who was with us back in the, uh, back in the, the, the narrative of Bethlehem, a baby being born in, in a manger is, is still that Jesus who, who walks with us today, man. We just have great confidence that the God that we serve is not, not a concept, it's not a philosophy, it's not a theory, it's not like a good idea worked up by a professor in a university, that we serve the God of the universe who sent his son to pay a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And that Jesus will be honored in the church both now and forever and throughout all generations. Yeah, it's been a little bit of a long week, but we've got a good God. I have heard his voice and my joy is complete. For the Bible says that he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. And in fact, surely he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. And in fact, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and your buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the air that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Oh, a thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right, but it will not come near you for only with your eyes will you see the reward of the wicked because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all ways because he has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him with long life. I will honor him and I will show him my salvation. That's the God that we worship in the church of the living. And he is still the strong tower that the righteous run into and they are made safe. <laughs> I was contacted this week by an organization who was once led by a rather controversial Christian figure. This leader was once caught on tape making anti-Semitic comments to the president of the United States. His critics said that he was opposed to the civil rights movement. Others complained that he was an absent father who chose ministry over raising his own kids. Between his five children, they have six divorces amongst them. 
At least two of them admitted to being on drugs and abusing alcohol, amongst other things. This individual never spoke in tongues, wasn't known for miracles or healings. He was often criticized for preaching a gospel that some said was too simple. When his, crusu cr when his crusades began to be televised, some said that he was only in it for the fame. When he was interviewed on The Late Show by Johnny Carson, some thought of him as a sellout to the celebrity crowd. When he met with the Pope in 1981 and again in 1991, he was criticized for being too friendly with the Catholics. For some, he was too political. For others, he wasn't political enough. And by the time he passed away, his ministry was worth hundreds of millions of dollars. His influence was global and an estimated 3 million people had given their lives to Christ as a result of his influence. That man's name was Billy Graham. This week, I spoke with a director from the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association about bringing his son, Franklin Graham, to the Northwest for an evangelistic crusade. They said, Pastor, do you have a date in mind? I said, oh boy, do I. I'd love to bring him out on Easter Sunday. They said, don't you have Pastor Benny preaching? I said, well, sure. We'll have an evangelistic crusade with Franklin at six and a miracle crusade at seven. Now, let me be clear. I don't know if those dates will work for their team, but I am committed to working alongside people who are different than me to see the region reached for Jesus Christ. It seems like today, the only thing that Christians hate more than the devil is other Christians whom they disagree with. Last week, I, or last month, I preached for a Catholic organization in Washington, D.C. Next month, I will share the stage at a conference with an individual who is diametrically opposed to my eschatology. In January, I'll be with Driscoll in Arizona, and in March, I will preach in California alongside a conservative Baptist minister. And my message is the same regardless of whatever environment I find myself in. Number one, salvation is only found in the name of Jesus Christ. Number two, our only hope is found in another great outpouring of God's spirit. And number three, if we can't figure out how to be unified in our faith, we will lose the next generation to the secularism of the world around us. And we got Catholics who attend this church. They take mass at the Catholic parish up the street and then join us for worship after. We got former Mormons who have been baptized in the church. We got folks from every political background. We got people who pursued as the first church they have ever attended and others who have been in the church world their entire lives. And my hope is that, that this church continues to be a place where folks from all types of backgrounds and affiliations and denominations and family systems can experience the presence of God and the transformative truth of the gospel message. I am often reminded of the story from Luke 5 where Jesus calls his first disciples. In Luke 5, the Gentile physician, Dr. Luke, records this story. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, launch out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled to their partners 
in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so full that they began to sink. I want to make some observations from Luke 5 this morning, if I could. First and foremost is this. Jesus tells Peter to launch out into the deep. Do you remember what it was like when you first learned how to swim? You were comfortable and without risk as long as your feet could touch the floor. But there came a time in your journey where swimming in the shallow end was no longer enough. The skills that you had learned, the strength that you had developed had to be put to the test. And that test wasn't conducted in the shallow end, it was conducted in the deep. Many Christians will live their entire lives quoting verses about the deep without ever developing the courage to swim. They will sing songs saying, Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders, but then shrink back when that song is met by an invitation to try. Oh, I know that a ship is safe in its harbor, but that isn't where ships were built to stay. You know, we have a three-year-old daughter who is learning how to swim. And we have a kiddie pool at home where she can practice. I stand there and I clap like an idiot when she gets in that little plastic pool. But as a father, I have another responsibility. If I never challenge her to grow beyond her current limitation, I am only hurting her future development. And I will not be clapping if she is 16 and still in the kiddie pool. The deep is where the fish are. The deep is where the opportunities lie. The deep is where your faith grows. The deep is where your soul is strengthened. No one wants to go to the deep initially, but once you learn how to swim, it is a crime against your own spiritual development to settle for the shallow. No, the deep end isn't where Christians go to drown. It's where believers go to thrive. Shallow roots will kill your growth. Deep roots will sustain your spirit. Shallow faith will kill your joy. Deep faith will inspire your hope. Shallow friendships will exhaust your energy, but deep friendships will illuminate your life. Oh, I can't force you to go to the deep end with me, but that is in fact where we are headed. Because if you want to catch the fish, you got to venture out to where the fish swim. The fish don't swim in the shallow end of religious disagreements about who deserves forgiveness and who doesn't. The fish do not swim in the shallow end of church splits over the color of the carpet. The fish swim on the streets dealing with addiction. The fish swim in our neighborhoods dealing with divorce and brokenness. The fish swim in our universities dealing with hopelessness and pain. And we can't afford to stay shallow, shallow when there is just so many fish to catch. Not just that, but number two. The Bible says that they signaled to their partners to, to come and help. The main economic engine of the entire region was the fish that swam in the Sea of Galilee. Every day, 
Dozens, if not hundreds of boats would be lined up on the shores to fight over the best spots to fish in hopes of making just enough money to survive another day. Peter, James, and John have fished all night catching nothing. But the Bible says that the word of the master, they launch out to try again. They cast their net, a miracle transpires, and they catch such a large number of fish that their nets begin to break. And what is their response? All of a sudden, their competition becomes their partners, and now both boats were filled with fish. I cannot tell you how many times over the last eight years we have outlasted our critics only to have them come back and join us as partners. When hundreds of folks get saved on Easter, my expectation is that not all of them are going to end up at pursuit. Some of those fish are going to jump in other boats and be developed in other communities, and I couldn't be happier. Whether folks in this region realize it or not, we are not in competition. We are in collaboration because the harvest is great and the laborers are few. And if Christians spent as much time loving their neighbors as they do complaining about other churches online, we might just see the whole region reach for Christ. The church where Maria and I met was non-denominational. The church that I worked at before planting was Assemblies of God. The pursuit survived our first winter because it was taken in by a four-square church up the road. And today we belong to the Converged Network, which is Baptist, and the FCA, which is Pentecostal. My favorite pastor is Joel Osteen. My favorite communicator is T.D. Jakes. My favorite thinker is G.K. Chesterton. My favorite author is Tim Keller. And my favorite Catholic is Mother Teresa. And if Mother Teresa didn't make it into heaven, we're all in trouble. I always refer to people as friend when I speak. I stole that from John McCain. When I preach with a microphone, I hold it like Judah Smith. When I make altar calls, I do it like Steve Hill. When I shake my hands, I stole that from Corey Russell. When I pray for people at the altar, I borrowed that from Oral Roberts. When I debate on public theology, I stole that from Dr. Michael Brown. When I teach on finances, I learned that from Robert Morris. And when I get a fake tan, I stole that from Donald Trump. <laughs> Every single one of these people I disagree with on different topics. Every single one of these people outside of the political folks, I would invite to preach on this stage because I think that there is something of value that they add to the kingdom of God. And for the rest of my life, my commitment is not to build a taller fence, but instead to build a longer table. And I have learned this secret. You don't have to agree or defend a thing that, per, you don't have to agree or defend everything that a person has ever said in order to partner with them in the catching of fish. But his fishing pole is different. Their boat is aluminum and ours is wood. They use live bait and we use artificial bait. 
He's got outboard motors and we got inboard. They sing Hillsong and we sing Bethel. They wear masks at their church and we never did. They don't believe in women in ministry and we do. Okay. But there is 800,000 fish in Snohomish County and one boat isn't big enough to hold them all. And while the church is arguing, the darkness is getting darker, the lost are drifting further, so let us signal to every partner that we can find, it is time to cast your nets. Pastor Benny has a net that I don't. Franklin Graham has a net that I don't. The Assemblies of God have a net that I don't. The Baptists have a net that I don't. I am calling every partner I can find. It is time to cast our nets. Do you know that when someone is slipping into hell, they don't care about how pretty the net is? They don't care about how controversial the net is. They don't care about how cool the net is. When someone is slipping into a Christless eternity, just about any net will do. I know that there are some folks in this community who have dedicated their time and energy to slandering me, my family, and this church. Frankly, I feel honored to take up so much space in their mental real estate but I am not playing this game. I am keeping my eyes on Jesus. And if they weren't talking about me, they'd be talking about somebody else because that's what talkers do. And can I just challenge you this morning? For a Christian, there is something more important than free speech. Let me say it again. For a Christian, there is something more important than free speech. The Bible tells us what it is. It's controlled speech. Let me prove it to you. James 1. If you claim to be religious, but you don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Let me rewrite that verse for our context. If you claim to be religious and don't control your Facebook posts, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. If you claim to be religious and don't control your Instagram posts, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. If you claim to be religious and you don't have self-control, then the God of your religion is you. Dr. Paul Aiken, Dr. Paul Aiken, the vice president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, published a recent article that made this observation. The most common reason foreign missionaries go back home is not due to a lack of money. It's not due to illness, terrorism, homesickness, or even a lack of fruit or response to the gospel. Regrettably, the number one reason that missionaries quit on the foreign field and return home is due to conflict with other missionaries. The World Evangelical Alliance released a significant study that found conflict with peers is the number one reason North American missionaries leave the mission field. 
Christians are known for a lot of things, but loving one another is not usually on the list. You know this better than most, but friendly fire doesn't help the church, it helps the enemy. We cannot afford to repeat these same cycles for the next generation. One of my favorite verses in all of the New Testament is often one of the most misquoted. Do you ever hear someone say, well, the Bible says they will know us by our love. Well, that's true, but it's incomplete. It's not actually the full quote that Jesus says. In John 13, Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love who? One another. You know, when Jesus says these words, it's in the context of the Last Supper where he tells his disciples, one of you will betray me and the other will deny me. And here is how the world will know that you belong to me. It's not signs, it's not wonders, it's not miracles, it's not mission, it's not programs, it's not VBS, it's not kids ministry, it's not eloquent teaching, it is not the rightness of your own theological narrative. Here is how the world will know that you belong to me if you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus has just finished washing the feet of Judas, who is going to betray him, and sharing bread with Peter, who is going to deny him. And he tells his disciples, do you see what I am doing right now? Do you see this activity? Do you see how I'm treating folks in this room? This is your responsibility going forward. And this is how the world will know that you belong to me if you love one another just like this. Oh, it's easy to love people you don't have to interact with. But that isn't what convinces the world we belong to Christ. It's the way that we love each other. And a love that is untested by disagreement is a love that has yet to be proved. Because if we can't figure it out in here, then why the heck do we think it will work out there? We will either win the war for unity on the inside or suffer the consequences of disunity on the outside. You decide. But as for me and my house, we're choosing unity. If you don't believe that you can honor someone and receive from someone without agreeing with everything that they have ever said or done, don't try marriage. It is not for you. Let me give you a list of guests who have preached on this stage who I don't fully agree with. Number one, Bill Johnson. Number two, Sean Foyt. Number three, Jake Hamilton, Corey Russell, Benny Perez, Landon Schott, Michael Maiden. And another one who's real pesky, he shows up just about every week, Russell Johnson. <laughs> and these people I am so grateful for because my life has been enriched by their teaching and their ministry. And here's what I am asking of you today. Trust in the destination that we are headed and then have grace for the unexpected turns along the way. You know, when Paul writes the church in Philippi, they have some concerns about other preachers in their community who may not have the right motives. And Paul addresses it in Philippians 1. It's incredible what he says. He writes the church in Philippi and he says, it is true. 
It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry and others out of goodwill. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice, yes, and I will continue to rejoice. When Jesus is ministering in Capernaum, his disciples reported that there was someone who wasn't with them casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And watch how Jesus responds. Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Yeah, it's been a a tough week, but I, I am simply too stubborn to give up. And as I've been talking with the Lord this week, he he reminded me of a verse that he has spoken to me several times over the last eight-year journey. What I've learned is that the most healthy person that you can ever process your frustrations with is the Father. Because he has perspective that you don't. And as I've been processing with God, to be honest, I've been complaining a little bit. God, this is your church, this is your house, this is your city, this is your event. We're gathering to celebrate, oh, I don't know, the resurrection. That was kind of your fault. (laughs) So what are you doing? What's up? What's going on? I could have swore I heard your voice. I could have swore you opened a door for us. So what's really going on? So many times in your dialogue of prayer, you are coming to God for answers to questions that you have in your heart, but God sidesteps those answers to actually speak to the core need that's inside of you. And the Lord spoke to me out of John 13, where Jesus tells his disciples, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but later you will. My God, well, I don't know how helpful that was, but thank you. The last time that the Lord spoke to me that was about five years ago when the pursuit had made an offer to purchase the Bramble Furniture Store right up here on 2nd Street. At that time, we were in a little tiny historic church right off of Cedar Avenue. We desperately needed more space, holding as many services as we could. We made an offer on that building, came into agreement with the owner. They were gonna sell it to us. We announced it on a Sunday. People cheered, they were excited. We took an offering, people sewed in to helping us make the down payment for that building. And on Monday morning, I woke up to a text message from that owner. Hey Russ, just wanted to let you know, I've decided not to sell this building to you. I spent the rest of that week complaining to the Lord. Did I miss it? Did you miss it? Are we crazy? Are you crazy? What is going on? And instead of giving me an answer, He spoke to me out of John 13. Russell, you do not understand now, but later you will. Three months later, I understood why that furniture store was not able for us to purchase. Because a little store called JCPenney became available in this complex. 
We gathered the prayer team. We laid hands on this building. We anointed this with oil. And over the next number of months, we worked with different banks and donors and lenders and friends to help purchase this facility. It's double, if not triple the size of what we were looking at before. It's got more availability, more resources, more parking, more land. It's a better building in every sense of the word. I didn't understand it then, but I understood it now. And I'm just confident that that same God speaks to us in similar ways, even in these moments. Moments where we are tempted to build altars to our understanding instead of worshiping the one who gives us a peace that passes our understanding. We worship at the altar of what we know, of what we can intellectualize, of what we can rationalize. We have so built altars to our own education and our own enlightenment that we have made us the center of our own religious narrative. But there is a God who sees the end from the beginning. He is faithful to finish what he has started. He has not failed and he won't start now. The government is on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. To the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. Upon the rock and the revelation of a risen Jesus, God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. No, God has seen where we are going. He knows things that we cannot know. And even if I don't understand now, I'm choosing to trust the one who has been to where we're about to go because even he makes a table for us in the presence of our enemies. On April 23rd, 1910, President Theodore Roosevelt gave what would go down in history as his most famous speech in the Grand Amphitheater of the University of Paris. Speaking to a room jam-packed with 2,000 students, professors, politicians, and heads of state, President Roosevelt warned against the arrogance of criticizing those who dare to try. He said these words, which have forever now become memorialized in the American lexicon. He said, it is not the critic that counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming, but who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with the those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. And come April, we're going to stand in the arena, both literally and figuratively. Our faces will be marred by dust, sweat, and blood. And who knows, we may come up short. But I refuse to be intimidated into not trying by religious hypocrites who expect grace for their mistakes but won't ever extend grace to anyone else. There is simply too many fish swimming beneath our boat to not use all the help that we can to bring them in. And let me end with the words of Christ from Matthew 5. Blessed are you. You are blessed, you are anointed, you are promoted, you are resourced, 
You are favored when they revile and persecute you. You are blessed when they say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. So, so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. I am convinced that God will use the foolish and humble attempts of broken people just like me and just like you to reap a harvest of souls in the Northwest because still today, the lamb is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. Come on, would you stand with me as we close? Let me pray for you today and encourage you in the Lord. And in doing so, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, this morning, we approach your throne of grace for help in our time of need. God, I thank you that the Bible says that you use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. All of our best laid plans and attempts are like foolishness unto you. For even the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And so God, I pray that you would take our foolish attempts, what we have offered you as a sacrifice from our own lives. God, I pray that you would take our foolish attempts and you would use it in profound ways to increase your kingdom in this region. God, I pray for your grace, your help, and your hope to reverberate in our hearts this Christmas season. That we wouldn't allow the enemy or the world to steal our joy, for in fact, they haven't given us our joy in the first place. God, today, we remain seated in heavenly places, co-laboring and co-heiring with God in Christ Jesus for the redemption of the world around us. We say, God, do your best work. And if we will lift you up, we trust that you will draw all people unto yourself. God, I pray that you would use these humble attempts at glorifying you to reap a harvest of souls in the next generation. We'll give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, come on, all God's people said, Amen and amen.